0: This is about something that lights your fire when nothing else will. This is the Mark Divine Show. This show, we're going to discover and dive in and discuss what makes the world's most inspirational, compassionate, and resilient leaders so courageous. Transform the nature and functioning of our own brain for the better. Go put your virtues in action. Be the best version of yourself. Life is a practice. Day by day, get wiser and stronger and Grow. How do you understand enough about your own mind and psychology and emotions and how you develop a reflective awareness practice to actually get in the driver's seat of your own mind? We go in-depth with people from all walks of life, martial arts grandmasters, meditative monks, CEOs, military leaders, stoic philosophers, proud survivors, and more. Every episode turns our guest's experience into actionable insights that you can learn from and lead a life filled with compassion and courage.
1: I started putting all these little tools in my pocket, started to reflect a lot and
0: meditate. There has to be a balance between movement and rest. It all starts with us. We cultivate these qualities in ourselves, we become a beacon of life for others in the world. Please join us on the journey. The Mark Divine Show, who ya.
1: Everyone, welcome to the Doctor Who Podcast. We appreciate you guys being here so much. Appreciate you supporting the people to support the pod. We uh, keeps the you've, you guys have been very kind in keeping the winds and the sail of the Corolla Pirate Ship now for quite some time. So, uh, let's keep it going. We appreciate it so we can keep doing these interesting interviews. Today is no exception. I have Mike Gimble. He is the Executive producer, uh, I'm sorry, he's executive produced by Susan and Robert Downey Jr. The podcast is The Sunshine Place. Mike is the president of Mike Gimbel Associates. He's uh, active in the field of substance abuse for 40 years, himself sober for nearly a half a century. It's amazing. Mike, welcome to the program.
0: <laughs> oh, it's good to see you again. Thank you, Jim.
1: Can you believe fifty years in sobriety? That's amazing. It's got to be some sort of record. Did you? Did you? Did you know Bill W? Did you? Did you know? The, did, you know did you go actually, to Akron to meet them? Did you? Say, did you have actually, coffee in the
0: kitchen? <laughs> I was his bartender. No, <laughs> no. Actually, uh, my whole story is what the podcast, the Sunshine Place, is about. I went into Synanon in California on October first. Nineteen seventy-two, and that was it. I never used again, and it'll be fifty years this October. Wow! First, so it's a uh, pretty amazing. You know, I haven't found too many people that have been on a consistent basis clean that long. And
1: and how did you get hooked up with Robert
0: Downey? Well, the uh, he teamed up with a few different companies, uh, Odyssey, which owns a lot of podcasts, uh, Cadence Thirteen. And a um, film company called Wink Pictures. I guess they're all out of Hollywood. And uh, Robert Downey and his wife Susan have a production company, and they've produced movies and TV series and a whole lot of stuff. They've never done a podcast. They've never produced a podcast. Mm. And somehow they linked together, and when they presented them with the Synanon story, and had some of our personal stories to show them they jumped right on it Mm. Um, what i'm told is they really got behind it and this so this is their officially their first uh podcast for uh downey team as they call it and
1: and why do you think robert was particularly interested in the synanon story
0: well certainly we all know you know robert downey jr has had a long history with Mm -hmm. addiction Mm -hmm. and rehab and prison Mm -hmm. and uh it's probably something that means a lot to him, and hearing the same stories that were told and are being told in the podcast through the 20 years of Synanon's existence, I think probably was something that he wanted to to do. It was a good way of getting into it, and you know, I, he's not doing a lot of publicity himself. He's not trying to promote it himself, but you know, the fact that they were behind it and they produced and their team got involved. And they, so far, it's it's been on now for five weeks. It's a total of eight. Uh, it's amazing. Just, un, it's unbelievable. I never thought they could capture what was going on in this drug program back in the 60s and the 70s by literally interviewing people who were there. Yeah. I mean, I've heard people on the podcast that I haven't seen since I was in Synanon in yeah. the 70s. And it's amazing to be able to do that. I think- Put it together in a package that's entertaining, it's frightening. I mean, the feedback I'm getting from people, uh, I, you know, I've always told my story about drugs. Yeah, everyone knows my story of my addiction and even even my recovery on this side of things and the work that I do. But I've never opened up about what my life was like and what happened to me in synonym
1: Is that so is that because... I'm guessing uh, people that get into sort of cultish kinds of slip into those sorts of situations often feel a good deal of shame about it. Like, oh, how could I've been so stupid? Is is that why you had never really talked about it, or it was just something that never really came up?
0: Well, I I mean it was it was a conscious decision not to talk about some of the things. One, you know, some are very personal, which we can get into, and the and the podcast gets into uh, super personal. The other is that it's complicated. Most people, when you say, "Oh, I was in Synanon, unless you're in the field and you understand the therapeutic community and what it was, people are going, okay, so you went out to... And that's what I tell people. I went out to California and I stayed out there seven and a half years (laughs) and uh, went through rehab and so forth. It's a very... That's why this podcast is so amazing because it's eight episodes. And that's what it takes to really understand what it's about. Uh, But I... But my own personal things that I went through, I don't think people could have understood what was going on. And maybe there was I think as I went through this podcast and telling my story this time,
1: yeah.
0: I actually got really sad about some parts of it that I was so young. Yeah. You know, I mean I, I started using drugs, I was 15 years old. Yeah. When I turned 21, I get rushed to on. So I really didn't grow up at all. I didn't know what things were and the things that he put us through in this cult that started as an amazing drug program. Right. Um, yeah, I was I don't know about embarrassment at this point, but I certainly it hit me harder now than it did ever before. So,
1: I I would argue that underlying that is sort of a guilt and shame kind of feeling. You know, it's like, oh, you know, how how could I? But, but, you know, you're you're exactly right. You were young. You didn't know what's going on. I mean, how how could you can't hold yourself to the same perceptions that you would have today, of course? But give people a thumbnail of your drug history so we get everyone up to speed with, you know, you end up in Folsom Prison, blah, blah, blah. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Look, I was part of the movement where uh, the Jews and the Italians were moving from downtown into the suburbs back in the 60s, the big movement out into the burbs, and uh, moved into a neighborhood. Uh, My parents got their nice new house and so forth. And I played a lot of sports, and I hooked up with a bunch of athletes. And I was young. At that point, I was like 12 or 13. And the athletes were kind of, you know, they moved a lot faster in growing up. You know, they were already going out with girls. They were already drinking because drinking was it back then. Mm. Nobody did any drugs. It was just alcohol. And so, you know, I I wanted to fit in so badly that I made sure I drank more than they did, that I got more drunk than they did. And then we got introduced to pot and other drugs started coming out into the suburbs. And I always say this when I talk to kids or adults. I say, my friends went varsity in sports. I went varsity in drugs. Mm. And with, by the time I was in the 10th grade, I don't remember going to school one day straight. Mm. By the 11th grade, I got introduced to heroin. And my entire senior year at high school, I was addicted to heroin. But again, not knowing about addiction, not knowing. All I know is in the summer of my junior year, I was at the beach and I got introduced to heroin and did it all summer. Came back to go to school. And about 10 o'clock in the morning at school, I started feeling lousy, you know, like I had the flu and I was feeling sick. And some dude comes up and goes, hey, man, yeah, you're addicted. You're going through withdrawal. Uh, I said, no way. And when I left to go down and buy my heroin, I got straight. Mm. Didn't get high. I got straight. Mm -hmm. And back then, a, a white kid from the suburbs could not buy heroin in downtown Baltimore. You had to have a black connection. So I had to hook up and get my black connection and then he would go and buy me the dope. And eventually uh I lived with my dealer because I was then selling all the heroin out in the suburbs just to get myself going. And that, that went on for a while. And I uh, got a, you know, once I got, I did graduate high school somehow. And then I ended up, uh, just keep I was just going for it. I was just every day, twenty-four-seven, robbing, stealing, selling drugs, everything that you hear about that that goes on. And eventually I got busted so many times that my parents literally went broke. Mm. Sell their house and all the stuff that I robbed and stole from them. I mean, they're you know, they were good, nice parents. Their kid can't do anything wrong. Mm. And they were, you know, in denial, worse than anybody until my dad called me with a needle in my arm in the bathroom. And that was his wake up call. Uh. He was a professional drummer in his life and he knew addicts and he went to one of them and they said, you know, there's this place in California called Synanon and uh, they're like the big up and coming place. And so uh, eventually I ended up uh, kind of ripping off the, what we called the black mafia back then for a lot of money and I was going to come to California and have a great time. And right before I left, I was in the house, and I hear this giant explosion. And they blew my car up. They were trying to kill me, mm. ripping them off. Yeah. And at that point, I said, hmm, that Synanon place sounds pretty good right now. <laughs> you know, I'll no. go out. Here at Santa Monica Beach. Yeah. I said, let's go. And I literally got on the plane with my, with my uh, bottle of Quaaludes, of course, mm. and drank on the way. Got to the LAX airport, stumbling around. Got picked up by the cops, and, uh, and I kept saying, uh, "I'm mumbling Sin and I, over and over." And so instead of taking me to jail, they put me in a taxi cab, and oh they told they told the cab driver, so "Don't me on the steps." So of lucky, Sin and
1: I. so lucky. Well, they yeah, must have known. Crazy, so. so, so you know, it start the way it starts is. You know, good and well-intentioned as Synanon started that way too. This And it, and to, to be clear, although it went down an a interesting path, it saved your life. It did save no your question. life. No question. And, I, and
0: I, I always use this analogy. I mean, this it's totally saved my life. Yeah. I wouldn't have been alive another couple of months probably. And I try to analogize it to a soldier who goes off to war, doesn't get hurt physically, but then he comes home. And he goes through PTSD. And I, that's kind of what happened to me. You know, uh, I learned everything that I know about addiction the first couple of years of On. I learned a heck of a lot and how to help people. And uh, and then it, when it began turning into a religion and then a violent cult, I got sucked
1: right into it. Okay, so so let's stop there. Yeah. So so there's your story. Now explain to people what Synanon is, what it was, what it came from, what who the you know it, it's a it's a whole there's a whole history there. And, oh and, yeah, yeah. And and no, then and, let's say. And by the way, um, I don't think people have taken had had it was aware of how bad Synanon was until maybe. God, 10 or 15 years ago, right? I mean, because I because I, I, started hearing in the recovering community, they're like, do you understand what that was? I'm like, well, they helped some people, but oh, no, no. Oh, no, no. So tell us what it was in the 60s and 70s. What was it originally? What was it supposed to be?
0: sitting on uh, began in an uh, apartment complex in Santa Monica by a alcoholic who was a businessman, and he started to go to AA meetings. And he enjoyed it and he liked it. He made some friends, but it didn't, it didn't seem enough to him. He wanted more. And so he would call some of his AA buddies, invite them over to his house, and they would get into these heavy discussions. And they would actually start yelling at each other, you know, because they didn't agree with each other. And the weird thing happened was when they would do that, a day later, they would call each other and say, you know what? I felt really good when we were yelling at each other. Uh-oh. You know, let's do it again. <laughs> oh,
1: boy. <laughs> and so they got
0: they got together again, and and they would do these little sessions, and uh, realized that it was really helping them a lot. And the word kind of got out in the Santa Monica community about this group that was going on, and that they were yelling at each other. No one beat each other up, and nobody threatened to kill each other. But they felt better. So this Charles Diederich, Chuck Diederich, is the is the guy who created uh, sit and on and he ended up getting lots of people coming over and fear, and said, I need more room. So he rented a little space on the beach in Santa Monica, told more people about it and, and people just kept coming. So, and so, all of a sudden,
1: wait, hold on before you. The, all of a sudden, before the, all of a sudden, wh- what was that? What was going on? What were they doing? What was the yelling at each other?
0: <laughs> well, I think what they felt and was that going to a, a 12 step meeting wasn't enough for them. They didn't either talk enough or they didn't have enough confrontation. And they just – in these little groups, they were able to kind of really we're, – we're, So it wasn't it
1: they were, like they were arguing about politics. They were just calling each other out on their shit.
0: That plus anything in their life.
1: Okay. So and, I, now, you know, and now all of a sudden, if I stopped you there. All of a sudden, huh? what happened?
0: The word kind of gets out in the community about hmm. what's going on over there. And he, buy, he rents a place so that more people can come. And play this, what was known, what became what's called the Synanon game. That was their therapy, and uh, it got bigger and bigger. And then he heard, and then he got a visit from a probation officer and said, "Hey, do you think you could do something with the drug addicts we have and some of the prisoners?" And he said, "Sure, bring a, you know." What, what did the what did kid, what did, the Syn-
1: what did the Synanon stand for?
0: Synanon came out of. Uh, Someone trying to say Symposium huh. and, 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 and either Al-Anon or,
1: Got you know. It. and, and it. came And
0: it. it came out Synanon.
1: Interesting. It doesn't
0: mean anything. Yeah. It doesn't have any uh, deep, you know, anything. I mean, he was just a drunk that, you know, wanted to help people and helped him. Yeah. And it just, and it, and it really grew. Uh, this is back in the uh, early 60s, mid 60s. It started to grow and more and more people came. And more and more people felt good and stayed clean. And they had this big kind of a old house on, on the beach, and, uh, which became their, known as the house on the beach. Where you want to go, and,
1: and so and is that where you is that is that where you ended up? The house on the beach? No, no. This yeah. was in the mid '60s. Okay, when it so, first
0: started. Right. I got there in '72.
1: Got it. And so, so and so at that point, is he still? He said he was a businessman, right? Is he still doing yeah. his business, or is he now no, full time? No, this. Okay. Yeah, he went full time in building this. Was he making and, money off of this? Was he charging for it?
0: No.
1: Okay, and, and it's it's you know because this is what. Uh, you know the original founders of AA were so scared of that they knew this potential existed in twelve step, and and people that are critical of twelve step will say things like it feels like a cult and the religious thing and blah 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 blah. The, there were tremendous measures taken to be to try to make sure this didn't happen uh, because these kinds of uh, I don't know a better word for it than this sort of inbred communities have potential to spin out by themselves if if they are sure. not checked on all fronts and, and at that point you know, there was the eleven Were the traditions even around yet at that point? Had the, had the traditions been yes. published? So there were the twelve, the eleven traditions, right? Yeah. No, he was he was
0: deeply involved with AA he because was, the
1: traditions are involved to well, but the traditions came late. They came late in the evolution right. of AA, and, and that that was one of the efforts to make sure this didn't happen. <laughs> and, and lo and behold, now now at this point in the history that we're walking through here. It really was a therapeutic community. It was it was kind of right. It was it was correct. It was exactly doing what it's supposed to do. You're supposed to have a therapeutic community. You have to have support of each other. Maybe there were right. some weird boundary issues. Was he already becoming kind of a you know a, 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 a charismatic leader of the program? Was there too much of that already?
0: There was no doubt that he was the charismatic leader in yeah. the early days. But yeah, yeah. the other thing that he did that back then was unusual. Well, he had all races of people could come in.
1: Both sexes? Both sexes. That's not good.
0: All he's mar- <laughs> one of the, the woman he married was a black woman addict who was in yes. prostitution.
1: Yeah. Well, guess what? So, I mean, that, that, was not the first, that was not the first patient he slept with. You,
0: you know, know, know what I mean?
1: that That's how you knew there was trouble right there. Not the multiple races, of course not. But, right, but the fact right. that you have men and women together and he's the charismatic leader of both uh-oh, now we're in trouble.
0: <laughs> now we're in trouble. Already, and I'm boom. Sure, they actually made a movie about uh um, with some famous you know, actors and actresses back in the, in the uh, late 60s. But even in that movie, it shows that the men were trying to hook up with the of women. Of course, of course. And that was a big issue when I got there. And, and, and you know, they made it very clear about some things about that.
1: That you're not but, supposed to do that, and yet it was happening all over the place. And of course, well, it wasn't the,
0: happening all over the place. They had a system to do it, you know, and and that was part of the what? process later. But not in the beginning. Right. In the beginning, I'm sure people did whatever they wanted to do because they didn't have really the only rules they had. Well, even smoking and, and that was eliminated later on down the line.
1: Well, but let's put it in the cultural context of the 60s and 70s. People had just awakened. You know, we just had the birth control pill come in. We just had antibiotics for STDs. That all, that all was like eight years old, six years old. And uh, sex of all type was just good. It's all good, whatever. That's nothing to do with addiction. That's nothing to do with addiction. What are you talking about? That's your just booze. What? Why does it? This is this is love. This is expressing yourself. Why would right. that be limited? Oh my God, they were so fucked up.
0: But you have to realize <laughs> back so, then, so you know, up. being able to take black and whites into a program like that was
1: pretty. uh that yeah. was already aggressive, that, which is you – know,
0: got, That got him going. And, and again, everybody, and that, was, that
1: was 45, 50 years ago, everybody. that We are, we are in – just think about how near term that history is. Ugh, blech. But keep yeah. going. Here we go. I,
0: no, I'm just saying it, it was – to the public, it was something obviously
1: – I, be, I bet it was celebrated though, right? It was celebrated,
0: yeah, yeah especially yeah. in L.A. Yeah. And what they did was on Saturday nights – they would have a, a Saturday night party, an open house, mm. and people could show up. And people showed up. Uh, celebrities showed up. It, got, it became kind of the cool thing yeah. you know, in LA at that point. Steve Allen was a big supporter back then. Was okay. he recovering? What's that? No. Is, yeah. no. Weird. And what was happening were people were coming in who weren't addicts, but they were seeing what was going on. Uh. They felt good about it, even politicians felt good about it like hey this guy's got something going on and it just kept again it just kept growing and growing because back then you know look when i went for any kind of treatment the only thing i got was being in a psychiatric hospital for 60 days there was no inpatient drug treatment back in in the uh, late 60s yeah. except in lexington kentucky we called ky uh, ky was that one and another federal program in another prison. Okay,
1: state. so so let me let me uh, parse that out a little bit. So he, what what Mike's talking about is this federal program in Kentucky which was where some of the original uh, models of addiction treatment were developed. Uh it is where we came to an uh, more of a biological understanding of addiction. It's also where they did horrible things to inmates and did experiments with LSD and all kinds of awful shit, but there was good things that came out of the uh Lexington, Kentucky program. Uh, and in you know I worked in a psychiatric hospital that was a hundred years old when I got there, and uh, it, 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 the remnants of all this stuff was still there for me. I saw it as well. So what they would do in the sixties and seventies at that hospital I worked at is they'd put you in a bungo, bungalow and stroke your hair and pat your hand for six months, for six weeks, <laughs> and, and and that's it. That was your treatment for alcoholism. So and maybe some no, psych, no, maybe a little psychoanalysis on the side.
0: You were we were. In, I was in a, a padded room, and yeah. they would give you a spoon to yeah. eat with, because yeah. they thought you might do something to yourself. Damn. And uh, yeah, yeah, you know, and that was it. <laughs>
1: Well, you might be surprised to learn that health insurance doesn't always cover the full cost of emergency medical flights. Even with comprehensive coverage, you can get hit with deductibles, co-pays. Protect your family and your finances with Air MedCare Network membership. As a member, if an emergency arises, the expense of air medical transport is completely covered when flown by an AMCN provider. Memberships cost as little as $85 a year and covers your entire household every day, even when you're away from home. That is just pennies a day. We all know that the unexpected can happen. An AMCN membership is protection no family should be without. And for a limited time, as a Dr. Drew podcast listener, you will get up to a $75 e-gift card. When you join, simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew. Use offer code Drew. Jordan Harbinger, we love him. We love his show. Jordan Harbinger Show, podcast you should be listening to. Apple named it one of the best of 2018. It's aimed at making you better informed, better critical thinker. And Jordan himself is such a great interviewer. He's a smart guy. As I've mentioned over and over, he's got this incredibly broad life experience, speaks multiple languages, been held hostage more than once. Who can say that? Look, he has, for instance, he had an episode with a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. It doesn't matter who the guest is. Jordan will find something useful and practical. It, it is just the way his head works. It's worth checking out. Again, I enjoy it. Adam likes it. We think you will. Search The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you know what's weird, Mike? You know what's extra super weird? when, when I, It just jumps out at me when I say those words about how, how, what a ridiculously prehistoric time that was. <laughs> what the fuck are we doing now letting people die on the streets with this disease? How, how much better is that? How much better is that? We will look at this stuff with more horror. Well, maybe we may look at it as the consequence of the excesses of the 60s and 70s, but I, I walk down the street watch, looking at my patients dying all day long, and it drives me out of my fucking mind. And can I say that and still get the podcast posted? Uh, and so again, we can, we can look with our jaundiced view of the past and, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and wag you our finger and how could they, uh, listen, everybody, we're not doing a better job today. We could be because we know how to yeah. do better, but we're not.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. We are, you know, and, and what really pisses you off, and I've been fighting this for my 40 years in Maryland and Baltimore and watching what's going on there, uh, is the fact that they have money. There is money now. I know
1: lots of it. We didn't have money
0: before. No, what they're doing is they're buying uh, billboards and uh, clean needles and uh, Narcan and safe injection sites, and they're putting their money on TV ads. They they don't put anything in. There's no treatment on demand anywhere.
1: Yeah, well, you, you know, need you need anywhere in the country. Regardless of your ability to pay. Well, I, I, there are a couple of cities – where did I read? Like Cleveland or something is starting to do it or there are some smaller cities starting to do some decent shit. But, but as you're saying, there literally is a belief in the bureaucratic structure that recovery from addiction, particularly opiate addiction, and return to a thriving life is A, impossible and B, dangerous. And they believe that. They believe mm-hmm. it. Now, I'm not saying that's, that that the dangerous part is not true. It is dangerous, and 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 we have to be able to select the right patient for the right treatment. Not everybody can get sober. I get that, but Mike would be dead now if he he'd be on the street shooting right now. He'd be in a safe, but you'd be living it up at a safe injection site, Mike, and it would die. That would be what you would have done. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, exactly. so back to Cinnarone. Yeah. So now we're moving but to not. the 70s. But
0: what we're, they don't understand, yeah. Here's, go, go ahead. But they don't under they don't understand addiction. I know. I know. I know. They they think, you know, giving them, you know, we saw it with methadone for 40 years. And now they're giving them other medications. And they say, get your prescription. You don't need any therapy. Here it is. You can get it online. And I'll see you later. Just take your medicine. Uh, I worked in a psychiatric hospital, one of the finest in the country. And they did that with their psych patients. Here's your medicine. Make sure you take it. Bye. You know, when their insurance would run out. Yep. But, you know, it's just ridiculous. They just don't understand. They really think they have these test strips for fentanyl now. I know. Right? Yeah. And they think that an addict, they don't realize that addicts now want fentanyl. I know. I mean, if I was out on the streets, I'd be, I'd be first one in line for fentanyl. Oh, yeah. I mean, they oh. want the toughest, strongest drug there is. Yeah,
1: imagine how you could have distributed that, man. You would have been, you would have been all over it. Like, tiny doses get you that high.
0: <laughs> Everybody, come up and share with me. I remember we, we, I was part of a group that uh, uh, robbed a pharmacy once, and we, we got all these, all these drugs, and everyone was fighting to go first. You know, to see which one it was, and first guy that did it, he he overdosed. Of course, but because that's just the nature. But if they could understand addiction and what drives them, and that only treatment changes behavior, not giving them medicines and clean needles and Narcan.
1: I, it makes anyway, me too upset, Mike. But, that's a different. Know, that's a different I, conversation.
0: <laughs> you got me going. I know, me too. Right? too. I
1: listen. Anybody that understands addiction, I write more letters
0: way. and do more. I
1: know interviews I about know. it. And no one listens. I me mean neither. Same thing. But
0: anyway, Synanon started growing. Yeah, that was the thing. Yeah. Whatever he was doing was working enough to get it bigger. He got people uh, to, to donate money. He ended up buying the uh, the Delmar Club on Pico and uh, Ocean. The big hotel now, but it's a big fancy hotel wow. on Pico and Ocean. And he bought that. It was that is a huge,
1: price. huge hotel.
0: Huge. Yeah. Wow. They, they were able to buy that. And then again, the growth of Sinon just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, people that were staying clean. And what he did with this, that's kind of when the name of the Sinon game seemed to pop up. Uh as a as a thing and here was here was his theory and see what you see what you think about this this concept was that addicts operate purely off their gut they want what they want when they want it and they want it now now who else acts like that as a newborn baby when a newborn baby wants to take a crap it takes a crap it doesn't use its, doesn't have a brain yet to develop to to know that you don't crap in your pants the addict doesn't use its brain either because it wants what he wants when he wants it. And so instead of, oh, I want drugs, instead of going in the brain and thinking about consequences or whatever, that's gone. They just take what they want and do it. And
1: and we know actually that biologically is in fact what's happening. The the prefrontal cortex cortex is shutting down. These motivational distortions are accelerating, getting worse, and all of a sudden you just have pure – pure motivation, which is do that again, do that again, do that again, and no thought process. Yeah.
0: And here's what he, so what he did to to his theory was to address that was to come up with his rules about the synonym game. Mm. And here, and what they said was when you're in the game, eight or 10 people could be with your boss. It could be with your friend. It could be with your, whoever you're in there with, you can say anything you want. To anybody in that circle, the only thing you can't do is threaten physical violence or actually have physical violence. And you could do that, and, we, and that would go on an hour, two hours every day. You'd get your game, you talk to your boss, you'd call him an mf you know for making you wash dishes or whatever your complaint was. And then when the game was over, the outside-of-the-game dichotomy was that you, act as a, you acted as if everything was fine. Mm. Okay, when someone said, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, I'm doing great. And you're working hard and, and you're nice and you're pleasant and you hold it in, even though you just want to spit it out mm. you know, and, and yell, and then you get a game and then you do it in the game. So his theory was to, to teach addicts to toughen that gut. So practicing
1: contain, practicing restraint. Practicing them yeah. too, yeah
0: and, and, and not, I, always
1: not a not a bad theory yeah. uh, you know it's yeah. an interesting theory. and, and that was
0: my yeah. right. and that was my experience. When I got there, yeah. it was at its peak yeah. of numbers. They had facilities at that point up and down the coast. Oh wow, uh, Jesus. we you know, when I came in on October first, 1972 they, they brought a group in of 50 and made them a peer group,, huh. and they moved us to a warehouse. And they put it, and they started putting us into a boot camp setting. So I was there, also also, it, you know,
1: also not a terrible idea, right? Yeah, these I are do, all these are all interesting we ideas. But okay. we got you know
0: in, in some on some street uh, Cloverfield Street in Santa Monica, there was a warehouse. Mm. They had bunk beds. They taught us to make our beds like an army and bounce yeah. a quarter off. Mm. We had to roll our socks, roll our underwear every day we got up. Huh. We exercised. We ran, we did whatever, and we come back and play the game, you know, and we lived in that warehouse. We were contained were, were there. You,
1: were you – there any 12-step involved or is it all no. just – So, so the, by that point, had the whole thing drifted away from 12-step? Yes. What, did he yes. give an explanation for that ever? One well,
0: of, it, it, it never – 12-step was really never part. Once he got – once he created this on game, 12-step uh. was kind of out the window. Oh. Because this was his – you know, oh, his, his model. Oh, and so, you know, it drew a lot of people. We had people living and moving in who were not addicts. Yeah. They were lifestyles. They liked the fact that we didn't smoke, we didn't drink, didn't do drugs, no violence. Uh, we started getting money. They, he started using addicts as a sales force. Sure. To sell pens and pencils. Oh, and we And we began at one point to be the third largest advertising specialty business in the country oh my god so we were getting money donations people moving in and he was buying more property and more everything and it just kind of got yeah it just grew and grew so when i got there it was like a you know i don't know why it worked for me because i never left and i never did drugs again
1: did you did you Uh, how did how did you finally get into 12-step or was well, that really part of your – did you have to sort of slowly adapt to that? Or what happened?
0: That was way, that was way after when I got back home.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. Was that just when something you found you home. needed? You needed a community? You, know, you just went to that? or how, how did that happen for you? it
0: was more about more – because about, when I got back, I had been there over seven years. Yeah, ago. He, yeah. And the brainwashing that he did with us was if you leave – because at some point here, he decided this was going to be a lifestyle – not a two-year, three-year, one-year program. He had this vision of making this a, a commune, a community. Yeah. And and so the theory becomes now it's, you just stay here. And if you leave, he would say, mostly to the addict, that you're going to die. You're going to fall in a manhole and you're going to so, die.
1: So again, like every good narcissistic system, mm-hmm. either all in or all out.
0: 100%. Yeah. And the problem was when people left,
1: they did die. Yeah, of and a lot of them did die. Well, a which is one of the pro- one of one of the problems of these kinds of organizations treatments is y- you become dependent on the whole process rather than developing the autonomy to be able to go into the world and thrive. And the goal is thriving, not just surviving. Now, if it's just surviving. This is no different than putting people on a medication. It's the same same thing, just keeping them dependent on something. So, so what happens finally? I've, I've only got like about 10 more minutes to hear on the slide, and people have to listen. <laughs> got, uh, I, I don't want to pull the curtain all the way back because I want people to go to the podcast and hear the story. Yeah, them, yeah I want That's why, yeah, I
0: wanna, you got to hear it in the podcast because yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. But ultimately, it got big. We got very wealthy uh, and it got bigger and bigger. And then he went into saying, that we're now a religion. Oh, perfect. A small r religion, as he called it. Perfect. And uh, you know, because now he wanted to make sure he kept this tax exempt status, and uh, and so we were now a religion, and uh, the Sinan game was our you know our temple, whatever. You're, you're, and it just well, got, you, again, was there got was there a or,
1: scripture? Was there a book of book of whatever? We
0: had a uh, he used a lot of Emerson as like we had a prayer in the morning. Oh, so interesting. Uh, you know, and and, uh, and what was and
1: happening he, to him? Was he sex addict, bipolar, what, narcissist, all of the above?
0: Well, you know, he, <laughs> you know, narcissist. you no, couldn't, he couldn't have an ego bigger than this yeah, guy. Yeah,
1: had. yeah. We,
0: he built a radio station and all of our facilities. Well, he sounds,
1: he, he sounds manic, though. Too. He sounds like he's hypomanic.
0: Probably, yeah. Probably, you know, and and when his when His wife died. She had diabetes, she died. But everywhere along the line, he would challenge us and make us do something. And if we didn't want to do it, you li- you left. Mm. Like when she got diabetes, he said, okay, we're giving up sugar mm. to support her. Mm-hmm. And everyone had to lose weight. And things that weren't horrible at that point. But then it got to be really, really crazy as time went on. When she died, he lost it. You could just tell he was just not the same. And he got very paranoid, mm. very worried. You know, they're all out to get us now. Lawyers were suing Synanon because he, he, families weren't leaving, and he kind of, uh, when they would leave, they'd call the police, uh, and it was getting a little bit crazy. And he just all of a sudden said, "You know, don't mess with us. We bought thousands and thousands of dollars worth of weapons." Jesus, uh,
1: it's like jo- it becomes I, I order, like Jonestown. I,
0: Yeah. yeah. No, it it was. It it was. And uh, anybody that came on our property, we would beat them up, not let them leave. Uh, It got really, really paranoid, really crazy. And uh, at one point, he said all the men, he got into this whole thing about he he opened a boot camp for kids. and And he was getting referrals from all over the country. And then he decided, well, there's so many kids out there that need help we're not going to have any kids anymore in sinanon And he said, and to do that, all the men have to get vasectomies. Oh my God. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and so- If you're pregnant, you have to have an abortion. Wow. Okay. Now here I am. I'm there four years, maybe at that point. And, uh, and I'm working for the administration for him and his board of directors. That's my job was to work with them work for them. And so, you know, I think that's really where the brainwashing came in because I was a, I was a trooper. Well, b- brainwashing
1: a is a slow process. It, yeah, it's, We're well, it's really looking
0: at four years now. Yeah, yeah. Four Year years. You're, on, you're, in, a,
1: you're in. You're in. I'm a and soldier. The work and, has been done. Yeah. Uh,
0: and I had a girlfriend uh, who they made us, they, they encouraged us to get married, even though we didn't want to, but They said, you two are good for synonym. And we got married. Mm. And then vasectomies came, and I'm on a bus little vehicle into Beverly Hills, and Beverly Hills doctors were volunteering their service. So at 25 years of age, I got a vasectomy. Jesus. And at the same time, I come back and find out that my girlfriend, now wife, is pregnant. Uh oh. She has to get an abortion. And here I am. I I swear to God, Drew, I didn't even know what it was.
1: What an abortion was.
0: but in a, I mean, I, yeah. I didn't understand it. I went yeah. with her, and I watched the whole thing. Oh, boy. And and I have these memories of, like, uh, yeah, yeah. you know?
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. And that's all I remember. And she had problems <laughs> medically for a year afterwards. But we were there. We were soldiers, and we were going. And finally, you know, but a lot of people left, and that's what he wanted. You know, the people that stayed were stronger. And then it reached the point where... Everybody was uh you know married or with a couple and uh one one day it gets on says, okay we're going to get rid of our our current partners and get new partners oh my god so that, so that you could learn how to uh uh fall in love uh. and so every so it was like it was insane it was like okay change partners and so and so,
1: so i i want to kind of cut to the chase a little bit so when, just a point to point to make is that right. If you're ever in, any, if you're in any kind of situation with a charismatic leader be, uh, get out, <laughs> yeah, beat yeah, it. yeah, beat it, yeah. Charismatic leaders in a community, beat it. dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. Just beat it, just yeah. beat it,
0: and beat it. eventually it all fell apart, and uh, you know people left. Uh, I left at that point. Why did you uh, leave? Left, Why did you leave? I left because uh, my parents have been married for seventy three years, and I, you know, and I was a very loyal soul there. And I and, and I had to let my wife go to another facility to, to find a guy. And I, they hooked me up with a actually a very pretty woman, someone I always had a crush on, but I couldn't do anything uh, with her. Mm, you know, I just uh, couldn't. Uh, it was something. And here I was in a high-powered position. And so I was embarrassing to the founder and everyone. Oh, and Jesus. Finally, I said, I got to leave. And normally what they did when someone wanted to leave was rough them up a bit. Uh. But I, I, they put me in the back of a pickup truck, no money, just the clothes on my back, and dumped me in the middle of San Francisco. Oof. And uh, being a nice little Jewish boy that I am, I called my Jewish mother, <laughs> oh. and they, they got me back to Baltimore. And the next day, my wife called at the time, and she wanted to come home, and we brought her home. And uh, two weeks later, I'm working for an inner-city Baltimore drug program. Mm-hmm. That was a therapeutic community, just mm-hmm. like Cinnanon. Oh, jeez! They were so, and I said, I just left Cinnanon. It was like I was Moses that came down oh, with the tower. Oh my god! You know, and then after that, you look around uh, Delancey Street, Phoenix House. They were all people I was in Cinnanon with. Mm. They all left and created their own model. Well, that,
1: that is the that is the criticism of those places, right? That's what I yeah. used to hear a lot of. Um, yeah. And yet, and yet anyway, they managed – by the way, those places managed not to spin out the same way. They, they, right. they could have, but they didn't. Yeah, and, they did learn. Yeah, they seemed to have learned something. And by the way, they were all 12-step based too, right?
0: Yeah. And so, no, I, some maybe, but I, Phoenix was in or Delancey Street was one of the biggest.
1: Not 12-step? Uh, I thought Delancey was, was 12-step.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Here's what I've noticed,
1: is that when people need to stay sober, and this is true of the communities that need to keep people sober, eventually they either torch out <laughs> or they drift towards 12-step. Even if they call it rational recovery, it's still really 12-step when it's being done right. properly. It's the same damn thing. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, everyone kind of goes there if they're really going to be a quality program or have long-term sobriety. It's just the way it is. Um, yeah. So... So you, you you bring me all the way up now because I'm again I'm, I've got okay, just a few minutes very, left very and, uh, and right, and I, I want to know I want what happened to you I want to know what happened to him in in a in a thumbnail. Well, I
0: was lucky that I you know I, I got a job I learned and then I uh, I told my story publicly in all the newspapers mm-hmm. and I was back. It was like a welcome back Cotter thing. Oh, <laughs> I came back to the old neighborhood, started talking to kids in the schools. Got appointed by the county executive as the first drug czar mm. for Baltimore County government. And I did that job for 25 years. Oh wow, I
1: didn't know I built, that.
0: I built it into a $15 million. That's I right. bu- I did what everyone should be doing now. Yeah. Took yeah. an old mental hospital, turned yeah. it into a treatment center yeah. for free, yeah. and built what I knew was right. Yeah. Did that. Then I started my own business. I started running marathons. I ran Boston Marathon eight times. And so I put together a program for athletes with mm. the NCAA. I'm playing safe, fair, and sober. Nice. And then I have my TV show that's been on for 35 years called Straight Talk. And that's syndicated to 15 different cities on YouTube and so forth. So, you know, I've been doing the work now, you know, over 40 years. Been clean 50 years coming up. And it's a blessing. I mean, every day I get up. uh, I just moved to Florida recently from Baltimore. And uh, still doing the work, still doing the show. Uh, Diederik ended up drinking again. Of course. You know, and he, he just you know he they the thing that Synanon was most known for was there was a lawyer in L.A. who sued Synanon. Diedrich took a group of people, called them the Marines, and he sent them out to hurt this lawyer, and they put a rattlesnake in his mailbox, and that's what everyone remembers about Synanon. That how, it,
1: how were they finally dismantled?
0: They basically, as as, as time went on, after the rattlesnake. You know, they took their uh, tax exempt away, Mm. Uh, the the, the cops, the IRS, the FBI, everybody was after him. And they moved to uh, uh, Lake Havada in Nevada somewhere. Yeah. And uh, he started drinking. And eventually he got uh, charged with, you know, the the attempted murder with the rattlesnake. And instead of he was very sick, he was in his mid 80s and uh, he died a few months later. From that.
1: Uh, and there well, it is, man. You want to hear the details? Go listen. You got it.
0: it's, a, it's called the Sunshine Place. Yep, and it's uh, you know Robert Downey Jr. and his wife.
1: Well, you see now when you hear when you hear the drama and the and the the, the human drama and all this, you understand why Robert would be attracted to this. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah, and, and let's, you know, shout out to Robert, who's been a leader in the recovering community and helping, unto, uh, quietly helping. Unto, people don't know how much he's helped people. Yeah. And yeah. And, um, and his sobriety is quite, quite solid. Uh, good for him. Uh, yeah. And he certainly went through it, his own, his own yeah. crucible. No, he
0: did. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, I, I think having his name and his production involved with this is really a big, a big thing for this to be promoted. Uh, but it's available. It's free. You, you know, I, so I want
1: to say something about Robert. He he, Robert is a gift. He, he's a gift in so many ways, and and I, I don't know if people appreciate how much. I mean, I think you know people that were young when Iron Man came around and sort of were tantalized by his acting, which is extraordinary. He once asked me if he should work again, and I thought. Oh, my God. He is such a gift. And how can he ask me that question? I couldn't answer it because I didn't know for him maybe he should. not I don't know. I couldn't tell. He he was so sick with his illness. And uh, thank God he listened to people and was able to come back and be that gift to all of us. And this is part of it. This is part of it. Uh, It doesn't surprise me that he'd be involved in something like this because that's – he he knows where to put his – you know, his attentions. So Mike, uh, it's been a while since we've talked. I, I'm such a, I'm so pleased to see you again and congratulations anything, whatever I can do to support your stuff. You know, I'm always uh, yeah, a, a yeah. fan, uh, applauding on the sidelines here for you. We, yeah, this was a really interesting
0: thing because the last episode will be the next week will be October 1st and that'll be number 50. <laughs> so wow. Incredible. It'll be, uh, it'll be interesting. And, and
1: yeah, uh, beware of cults, I mean, everybody. Cults are, you know, charismatic leaders. You know, it's just it, it's easy to you. You think you could it couldn't happen to you? It can. It's just it's a human. It's not just yeah. a glitch in our systems. It's it's a feature of our systems, and you, and you have to kind of protect yourself against it. And okay. uh, those of you who think the twelve step has those qualities, know it's specifically designed to have, to not let this happen. Right. Exactly. And it doesn't, doesn't surprise me that he. Diederich was his name right Dieterich? yeah Dietrich. Mo- moved away Diederich. yeah moved away from from the principles that uh keep this thing going without uh without deteriorating into something like this so right. all right my friend anything else you want to promote before i let you go
0: no 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 i mean you know my shows it is it, called straight talk with mike gimble and it's all over the place but i'm fine all right you know, buddy I, it's right a, now it's uh Trying to get people to watch this and get a better un- understanding of what happened.
1: Well, hopefully uh, this How, conversation. Hell will, of a story. Yeah, it is a hell of a story. I, I, a hell I, of a story. I, I leave this conversation wanting to listen to the podcast. So I'm guessing a lot of other people are having that same reaction. So,
0: yeah. oh, it's amazing! It's amazing. Uh, Drew, thank you so uh, much. Keep, keep up what you're doing. Thanks, I follow buddy. you everywhere. Uh, oh, I did have. I, I think we just read about Howard Stern's dad.
1: Yeah, he just passed away. I'm afraid. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, you know, and so. Well, he lived yeah.
1: a very – look, I, I you know, do a lot of geriatric care myself, and I do believe there's a time to become philosophical. When people live long, rich lives, nobody lives forever, everybody. And when you get to be a male in your 90s, there's more misery than quality. Yeah. And so when lives end, you can celebrate. It's okay to celebrate a good life, long life, well-lived. It's okay. So there you go.
0: Yeah, no, and that's how my parents went. Yeah. Same way.
1: All right, Mike. We'll talk soon. uh, Anyway, I follow you
0: all all the time. Thank you, man. Take care of yourself. All right. Okay. See you later. Thank you. You Thanks for everything.
1: Bye bye. And uh, for everyone else, we'll see you next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the and sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com.
0: All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show with Airbnb's co-founder and CEO, Brian Chesky. One day, I had this moment in my
1: life where the metaphor is as if the road I'm going to travel looks exactly like the road I have traveled. This is the rest of my life. And I had this moment, like, I need to make a change. I don't want to work for a company. I want to be an entrepreneur. I pack everything in the backseat of old Honda Civic, and... I drive to San Francisco. I get to San Francisco and Joe tells me the rent is $1,150. So I don't have enough money to pay rent. It turns out that weekend though, an International Design Conference was coming to San Francisco. We said, well, what if we just turned our house into a bed and breakfast for a design conference? Joe had three air beds, so we inflated the air beds and we called it airbedandbreakfast.com. People said this idea will never work. Strangers will never stay
0: with other strangers. But three people did that one weekend. For more on the idea that took Airbnb to a billion dollar company, check out episode 566 of The Jordan Harbinger Show.
1: Saddle up and get ready for Westerns Weeks on Pluto TV, all for free. We're coming in blazing with favorites like True Grit and Once Upon a Time in Mexico, or immerse yourself in binge worthy series like Yellowstone and Walker, Texas Ranger. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of channels with thousands more movies, TV shows, and more. The best part, it's free. No credit card, no sign-up, no fees. Download the Pluto TV app on all your favorite devices and start streaming now.